are continuing in the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to be finishing up chapter 3 this morning. I hope most of you have been with us and going through the journey and the trek through this Gospel of John. I hope it's been a blessing to you this morning. If you're taking notes, the title of our message is The Supremacy of Christ. The Supremacy of Christ. We'll be looking at verses in chapter 3, verses 22 through 36 this morning. We're going to go ahead and dive into the text this morning. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, open up to John chapter 3. If not, if you grabbed a bulletin on the way in, the text is on the left-hand side of the bulletin inside. But if you can rise to your feet and honor the public reading of God's Word together. I'll be reading from the ESV version of the Bible this morning, starting in verse 22 of chapter 3. We read, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So reads God's infallible and errant and holy written word. Please be seated, church. What a long passage we have today. Everybody's ready? Alan told me we had 30 minutes. I told him times four. So we're ready for two hours? Or was it times three, Alan? One of those. We've got plenty of time to get through our text, Lord willing. As I've told you, every time we've entered into John's Gospel, it's important for us to understand why did he record this Gospel. Some of you have that verse memorized already. It is in John chapter 20, verse 31, why John the Apostle recorded this. It is that these things are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's go ahead and pray before we go ahead and study this morning. Father. This is why these things have been written for us, that we might believe and have life in Christ's name. And for many of us here this morning, God, you have drawn us to yourself and through repentance and faith, have called us children of yours. God, may we be encouraged by your word this morning. May we be drawn closer to you. May you reveal yourself more to us. And Father, for anyone in this place today that does not know you, God, may your scripture do exactly what it was written for, to draw them to Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, recently we went, I think it was the last study a couple weeks ago, John 3.16. We talked about one of the most famous Bible verses, John 3.16. Even people in the end zone of a football game in the stands hold up a sign, John 3.16. But there's another favorite verse that people often use. I see it on stickers slapped on signposts, which... I think is illegal, but they're putting up a verse. I'm not sure that that's a good way of spreading God's word by illegally posting it up in places. But the verse is John chapter 14, verse 6. 
Many of you are familiar with it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Have you ever thought about that verse? What does it mean to be the way, the truth, and the life? And it's interesting because that verse unfolds in our text this morning. When John the Baptist and everything that's going on with him, you're going to see him pointing to the way, being Christ. Speaking of him as the truth and the giver of life. So this morning, if you're taking notes, those are going to be our three points this morning. The first point will be the way. And we'll be looking at that in verses 22 through 30. The second point will be the truth in verses 31 through 34. And lastly, the life in verses 35 and 36. Now in our first point, the way. There's some background it's going to take to get into this text this morning, to get into the meat of this point. But look with me at verse 22, and it starts off with a couple words. After this. Anytime you see something like that in Scripture, you have to ask yourself what? After what? What had occurred before this? Well, we looked at and we studied the miracle at the wedding of Cana, Jesus' first miracle. We saw that he went and participated in the Passover. We saw his interaction with Nicodemus. And now we see he's on his way down to the Judean countryside with his disciples, and they are baptizing people there. Now, if you just look a little bit ahead in your Bible to John chapter 4, verse 2, anybody see a little insert there? John chapter 4, verse 2. It tells us that although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples were. So make sure we understand from this context, because if you look at verse 22, it's not that clear. It sounds like Jesus and his disciples were there baptizing. But John clears it up and says, only his disciples were there baptizing. And I'm going to go on a little side note about baptism. This is not believer's baptism that some of you have participated in. That after God drew you in repentance and faith in Christ, you participated in believer's baptism as an outward expression of the inward change. That you are now living for Christ. You are now demonstrating to others what Christ has done in your life and testifying to the world that you are now a follower of Jesus Christ. That is not what was going on here. They're still performing the baptism of John the Baptist, of calling people to repentance, calling them up. They were in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was full of all types of ceremonial cleanings, and many came along thinking, hey, here's just one more. Many had no clue, as we'll see from our text this morning, that John the Baptist's whole ministry was to point to Jesus point to the way they thought hey it's just one more ritual we need to go jump in and be part of let's go follow him let's go out and be baptized so here we see in verse 23 that john the baptist was also at the same time out still baptizing in a place called i and it's interesting that in relation look at verse 23 in your bibles notice after the comment says that the reason he's there is because there was water that was plentiful there have you ever thought about baptism how are you supposed to be baptized? Which way are you supposed to be baptized? Do you realize how much division there's been in the Christian church over the last couple thousand years because of baptism? But if we look in Scripture, by the way, we're Baptists for a reason. The name Baptists. But if we look at Scripture, even here, the reason John the Baptist picked this area is because there was lots of water there. You see, the pendulum swings from one side that says you can take a little bit of water and just sprinkle it on somebody to the other side that says, no, the person needs to be fully immersed in the water. So I ask you, church, which one's right? We have to infer from Scripture from what we read. So the first thing, John the Baptist is in a place where there's plenty of water. You don't need plenty of water to sprinkle on somebody. You need a little spritz. There's plenty of water there. We also know that Romans chapter 6 portrays baptism as the symbolism of us being buried with Christ and as coming out in newness of life. What would that illustrate for you? Immersion. How about Jesus? Remember when Jesus was baptized? He went into the water and it says he came up out of the water. Immersion. 
So for those of you that have always questioned, well, what, what is the right way? What does Scripture lean towards? Or what does Scripture inform us about? Scripture definitely gives us enough verses to say that baptism is full immersion. And I've dealt with people who say, well, I'm afraid of water. That's a great time to trust God and to obey Him and to hope the pastor or whoever is, is dunking you down doesn't hold you down too long. But baptism is full immersion. Right here we've got those coming out following John the Baptist in this ritual cleansing, this form of repentance that they're participating in. Follow with me into verse 24. 24 is another parenthetical insert that says, this all occurred before John the Baptist went to prison. And that's really important for you Bible students because some of you know the Gospels really well. And the synoptic Gospels, those that write about the same thing, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all say that Jesus' ministry started after John the Baptist went to prison. So John the Apostle is making a point here saying, oh, by the way, this is what was going on before John the Baptist ever went to prison. Jesus was out with his disciples, and they were out baptizing. And these things were going on. All right, that's all introduction into this point. Point number one again, the way. Now you guys ready for the meat? Here we go. All those coming to John the Baptist, they're under the old covenant. You've got to get that in your mind. They're not coming to a believer's baptism. They haven't repented and trusted in Christ. They're just following him, calling people out to repent. Repent. We're like, okay, well. We need to follow God. We're going to go out and repent. The central pillars of the Old Covenant were holiness and a love for God and a love for others. But by this time in Jesus' day, all that was gone for most of the Jews. Most of it was just an outward facade of religiosity. They were all about different religious uh, rituals, ceremonial rituals, and superficial morality. They weren't about holiness. They weren't about loving God and loving others. They were putting on an outward form of religion. It was dead religion. And we see in verse 25 a discussion that comes up between John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew, and it's over purification. Say, we have more, more legalistic ritualism? The argument is that there's more to it, there's more to add on. And if you know anything about the Jews, they would tack on all kinds of things say, look what I'm doing. Look at my religion. Look at all the things I'm doing to try to please God. But John the Baptist comes on the scene to point them to something else. That the religion that you're now seeking, the religion you're pursuing, it's not about that. It's about Christ. That Christ is the way. That is not simply about being religious. It's not about going through the motions. It's not about trying to feel religious. John the Baptist say, your religion is empty. And we see in verse 26, keep following through in your Bibles, that John's own disciples come to him and they get jealous. Look, they're not coming to him to inform him, oh, look, people are going to Jesus. They come to him in jealousy and say, hey, look at it, okay, the guy who you testified about, everybody's going to him. They're concerned. What does that reveal about them? What did they care about? There's a lot of pride there. It's their movement, their thing. It's about us. I want people to gather with us and be about us. And they're looking at these people going to Jesus, going, well, and they even say, all are going to him. That's an exaggeration. Because as we'll study this morning, we see another exaggeration that says no one went. No one believed in his testimony. But they say, look, that one who you bore witness about. You guys, John the Baptist, the whole mission of him was to bear witness about Christ, to point to the way. We read that in the very opening of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 7. It says, he being, being John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. This was why he was there, to point to Christ. But his followers... His followers aren't looking to Christ. They're looking at, look, we're building something here. We have a movement. And they go to him and say, look what's going on. He's over there baptizing. And all are going to him. Well, first of all, he wasn't baptizing. We know that. His disciples were. But more importantly, 
Not all were going. Some were. So these so-called religious men, these disciples of John the Baptist, they're jealous. They're envious that people are going to Jesus. They saw Jesus as a threat and not as a savior. That was their view. And sadly, the same carnal thinking occurs today. And the same carnal thinking of, of why are they going there and not here happens in many churches today. Churches get jealous over one another. And they look and say, look at the influx of people over there. Why are they going there and not here? It really happens. It's happening today. It happens all over the place. That churches are more concerned about their own kingdom than God's kingdom. It's sad. Their focus is entirely wrong. Instead of being on Christ, their focus is on themselves. But John the Baptist, Jesus said of him, there was no one greater born among women than John the Baptist. He was a godly man. They're trying to stir up in him some jealousy, some envy, and he doesn't go for it. He doesn't respond that way. He humbly responds by pointing them to Jesus. Jesus is the way. And that should be all of our focus as well. Jesus is the way. I love what John MacArthur says about this. He says, the measure of success for any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through the minister. It's a big difference. You know, we gather together not to hear the words of the pastor, but to hear the words of our Lord. To hear God's written word that he's given to us. Otherwise, we can go from one pulpit to another to hear the opinions of man. And then we want to sit on whichever opinion we like better. But we come to go line by line through God's word to know what God says. To know what God desires. To know how he will reveal himself to us. Let's continue in our text, looking down in verse 27. In verse 27, we see that John the Baptist reminds his disciples that God is sovereign. God is in complete control of all things. Church, quite frankly, we need to remember that at times. You got things that concern you? Things that draw your mind away? Things that you start worrying about? These guys are worried, well, our movement, something's going on. People are going over there. And John's response is, tell Fred, he says, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. What does that mean? God's in control. God's in control of all things. So when you fret, when you fear, the reality is God's in control. God's in control of everything. This is John the Baptist's response to them getting jealous. What are you getting jealous about? What are you fearful about? God is in control. It is God's will that matters, not our will. And he continues in verse 28, reminding his disciples what he already told them, that he is not the Christ. You guys are coming out. You're following me. I've already told you I am not him. You'll recall with me in chapter 1 of John, verse 20. John the Baptist confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He wasn't deceiving these followers. He was telling them, you need to repent and turn to God. And you need to look to Christ, the Messiah. He was the forerunner, the one to come before the Christ, the one to point the people to the way. Jesus is the way. There is no other way. He is the way. In John 14, 6, he didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way. The only way. Why? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is no other. There is no other. You know, some of us think, if only I had more money and I had more possessions, and I had more things, what would that do for me? As we see in Scripture, it would cause you to build bigger barns to store your stuff. You know there's great business in America of storage containers? Because people just pursue more stuff. That doesn't gain you anything. What if you gained the whole world yet lost 
girls. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the way. He is the one that we abandon all else for to go after that way. No other way. John then refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom. If you look at verse 29. And he says, as a friend of the bridegroom, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, as the bridegroom. He says, I don't get jealous when people are going to. I rejoice at hearing his voice. I am thankful. He says his joy is made complete by knowing and hearing the bridegroom. So when we see or hear people coming to Christ, we should rejoice. That should make us glad. It should cause us to rejoice in him. Not say, well, I wish they would have come to my church. That doesn't matter. It matters that they know the way, that they're saved. The bridegroom is the way. John the Baptist was commissioned for one purpose, to point people to the way. That was it. That was his whole plan in life that God gave him, is you're to go out, call people to repentance, and point to Christ. Well, guess what, church? Christ is now on the scene. So John the Baptist's ministry is now being fulfilled. He says, I rejoice that I hear the voice of the bridegroom. So not only does he tell his disciples, hey, calm down. It's okay that people are going to him. They should be going to him. He goes, that's fulfilling the ministry I have that people go to Christ. And that is the same with us, that we should be directed to the way. Jesus Christ, the only way. And I love the way that John writes in verse 30. Many of you are familiar with this verse. Some of you have seen little bumper stickers of a company that says, he is greater than I. They base it off this verse. John 3.30, John the Baptist says, He, being Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. Now think about that. Think about someone who comes out and labors and works to draw in a crowd to point to somebody and now realize it's not about me. It's about him. I need to slip out of the, the forefront and in the, you know, you got the lights on, I gotta get out of the lights. And let the light shine on Christ. He is here. That's what he's saying. He's saying there is salvation in no one else. There's no name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way. I need to step out and point to him. And church, quite frankly, all of us need to. Christ must increase and we must decrease. It's about him. He is the way. You know, even well-intentioned, sometimes we go to help somebody, but in helping them, we need to point them to Christ, not to us. Christ, He is the way. John the Baptist sets the perfect example by humbly, or actually humbling himself before this command of God to point the way to Christ, that Christ, the supremacy of Christ, that's what matters. Christ is far better, far greater. He is the only way. He's the only way to salvation. Now, how many of us have somebody that we know that we're praying for? We pray for their safety. We pray for their health. We pray for that they get somewhere okay, that they get through some situation. But what matters most? That they know the way. They need the way. He is not only the way, we'll see in point two, but he's also the truth. Jesus is the truth. I want you to look at verses 30 and 31 in your Bible. It's interesting because depending on your translation of your Bible that you have in your lap, some of the translations keep the dialogue going from John the Baptist. They put the quotes all the way at the end of verse 36. Some of yours, if you have an ESV, ends it right there at the end of verse 30. You guys looking at your Bibles? Some of you had just the bulletin going, well, I have, that's the ESV. Look at it, because it's important. we got to realize who's talking here. As we continue in verse 31, who is speaking? Is it John the Apostle who wrote this, or is it still John the Baptist speaking to his disciples? And depending on the translation you have in your lap, the NASB, the New King James, the NLT, they all put the quotes at the end of verse 36. And I believe they're right. I believe this is all one quote speaking of John the Baptist. This is what he's speaking. And it's important for us to understand that as we go through this, this is still the continuation 
of John the Baptist's response to his disciples. So again, looking at the truth. Not only is Jesus the way, he is also the truth. The first thing that John the Baptist points to is his origin. Look at verse 31. John 3.31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly manner. He who comes from heaven is above all. You guys see something repeat? There's bookends on this. He who comes from above or he who comes from heaven is above all. We see that bookending, this verse. What's in the middle? John the Baptist referring to himself. Saying, look, I'm from earth. I belong to earth and I speak in an earthly way. But there's one who is far greater. There's one who can speak complete and full truth. Some of you say, wait, Pastor, does that mean John the Baptist is a liar? Well, we know that John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. And he was used by God in a mighty way as he submitted himself to God's will. He was given a portion of God's Spirit. And he spoke the things that he had not yet seen. He had not been to heaven. He's been given a message that he has not yet seen, but he's speaking. But what he says here, there's somebody who has come from heaven. And somebody who's got a far greater message. He has a heavenly vantage point, And that being Jesus Christ. John 3.32 says that Christ bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Think about this. Jesus, being fully God, fully man. He is the truth because he comes from heaven where he has a heavenly perspective on what truth is and of the Father, and he testifies what he's seen and what he's heard. This is truth. He's been there, done that, and he testifies to the truth. No one else in all of human history can testify to that. No one can say, I've been there. And I know some of you say, well, Pastor, I saw this movie, and this person went there, and they came back. And That's a movie. This is Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Only Jesus can testify as the one who has been to heaven, who has witnessed what's there with his eyes, heard with his ears, and now he gives testimony. And how do people respond? By not receiving it. By not receiving it. We actually read, no one receives his testimony. That's an exaggeration. It's called hyperbolic. It's a form of speech that you would exaggerate to illustrate a point. And it's to illustrate the point that many rejected his testimony. Many rejected him. And although John's disciples, John the Baptist, said that all were going to him, the reality is, not many were receiving his testimony. All the miracles you could think of that Jesus did, think about the feeding of the 4,000, the 5,000. Why were people coming? To get food. There was free food. I know people that get an announcement that says like the, the car dealerships giving away in and out, and they don't go to buy a car, they want to get free in and out of the car dealership. That's how people were using the ministry of Jesus. They go, hey, there's free food. Or there's something to see, there's a sight to see, but they did not believe his testimony. But Jesus, having a heavenly vantage point, is the truth. He has come from heaven with a perfect message. So the question is, why then would so many reject the message? Why would they reject it? In our last study of John, we actually looked at the answer. In John chapter 3, verse 19, we read, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, listen, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why did they not believe his testimony? Because they would be accountable to it. You see, people say there is no God. There's a reason why they would say there is no God. Because if I can deceive myself to believe there is no God, then I feel I'm not accountable to God. But they're sadly mistaken. Because just because I'm deceived does not mean that I'm no longer accountable. And here the judgment has come, but they love darkness. 
They loved wicked, so they rejected the true testimony of Christ. Bless you. But there are those who receive His testimony. It's not all sad and gloomy. There are those who receive it. We read in verse 33, whoever receives His testimony sets His seal to this, that God is true. Again, we see truth. It's only through faith in Christ that one will possess truth. Only through faith in Christ. Look, there are many people who will read this and won't be able to spiritually discern it. And it will turn out to be a bunch of letters on a page and a story. And they'll tell you about Noah and about Abraham and all these different stories. Samson, Delilah, Delilah, Delilah. Say that right. Delilah. Woo! But there will be no spiritual significance. They won't be able to discern it because the only way to discern truth is by faith in Christ because what happens, church, is then you receive the Spirit of God to discern the things of God, the mind of God. Here we see John writes that they set their seal. That means to certify. They certify that God is real. And that truth, those blinders come out by faith in Christ. By placing their trust and hope in Christ, blinders have been taken off and they know that God is real. But church, to reject Christ is to reject God. To reject Christ is to reject God. And Jesus, as the truth, He speaks forth the words of God. Look at verse 34 with me. For He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. See, John the Baptist came as the last Old Testament prophet, and he had a measure of God's Spirit. But Christ had the fullness of it. It wasn't a one-time anointing of the Spirit. It was forever. You'll remember when he came out in John chapter 1, verse 32. It says that John bore witness. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. He had the Spirit. It remained on him. The fullness without measure was upon Christ. So I want to bring this together right now because we speak of the truth and some people say, well, what about the prophets? Were they not speaking truth? Yeah, God used prophets. They had a measure of God's Spirit to discern truth. They just didn't have the heavenly vantage point that Christ had. Christ is the much better messenger because he's seen what's there. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, in verse 2, in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. For those of you that have been here since the beginning of this study in the book of John, was Jesus Christ created in the beginning? It's a question. It's a test for you. No. Preeminent. He's always existed. He was there in the beginning. It didn't mean He was created in the beginning. He was there and through Him all things were created and nothing was created unless it was created through Him. He is the beginning and He is the end. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. And as we'll see in our third point, He is the life. And here's where everything hangs on. We could look to Jesus and say, yeah, you know what? With the head knowledge, I believe that Jesus is the way. And with the head knowledge, I can testify and say, you know what? I do believe that Jesus spoke truth. But the life is what matters here. As we get to point number three, it starts off in verse 35. We read, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. We need to realize that Jesus has been given supreme authority over everything. I want you to think of anything in your mind right now. He has authority over. He has authority over everything. Supreme authority over all things. And guess what? That includes your life and my life. He has supreme authority over all of it. And with that in mind, John the Baptist gave one final invitation. And he also gives one final warning before fading out of the sun. Pastor Manny, when he was giving announcements this morning, mentioned this verse. John 3.36, because it is a verse that brings discernment to us on what does faith look like? What does saving faith look like? 
So look with me in John 3.36. If you have your own Bible, circle that verse. It's a great verse. John 3.36 reads, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. To which we would say, Hallelujah. That's the invitation. That's the part where he comes out and says, Look, eternal life is only through the way. It's only through the one that knows the truth. It is only through the giver of life. It must be Christ. It is through Him that you might have eternal life. Some of you keep reading that verse and said, but there's more to that, Pastor. We'll get to that in a moment. But the invitation is, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The question this morning for us is, what does it mean to believe? Because many of you are here, we went through the book of James, and we know that the demons believe, yet they tremble. They don't have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean to believe? Well, we know that, one, it comes out of repentance and faith, in trusting in Christ. You know, Jesus said just a couple chapters later in John chapter 5, verse 24, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You know, some of us think that we're actually not that bad. Some of you just look down your row and find somebody and go, I'm not as bad as them. I know what they've done. But the scriptures actually speak of us being in a very bad place. And that bad place is called death. It's says spiritually we are dead. And because of our sins, there's nothing good that we can do about them. And so here Jesus says, look, I've taken you from death to life. I've rescued you with my own blood. We need to understand when we speak of life, it's not only life now that Jesus speaks of, I will give abundant life, but it's forevermore. It's forevermore. You know, some of us have this, this wrong picture of heaven. We see little fat angels sitting on a cloud playing a harp and think that's what we're going to be around in heaven forever. But there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And I want you to think of all the things that you enjoy in life and think about them not being tainted by sin. Think about there being no grief, no pain, no sorrow but still all the things that God has created for us to enjoy. Do you realize He's given us life to enjoy? We're not to be robots and go just to be miserable every day. He's given us things to enjoy. And when there's a new heaven and a new earth, in that place that will be forever, that will be a place where we get to enjoy and no longer have the sorrows and the pains and the woes of life. Where the lion and the lamb can lie together. Think about that for a second. Try that in Animal Kingdom. It's not going to last very long right now. But a time when there is complete peace. So what does eternal life look like now for us? Jesus put it this way in John chapter 17. In verse 3, he said, This is eternal life. This is eternal life. That you may know, excuse me, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the high priestly prayer. He's speaking to the Heavenly Father, and he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What does that mean? What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know Jesus Christ? That brings us right back to verse 36. That those who believe in the Son have eternal life. For many of us here this morning, we would all testify, I believe. Even those who were nailing Jesus to the cross got to see crazy things happen. And some would believe surely that was the Son of God because they saw it with their own eyes. Yet, does that make it a saving faith? There are many who saw all of Christ's miracles before them, but it wasn't a saving faith. It wasn't a genuine knowledge. There is more to it. And church, I need you to listen right now because there is nothing more important in this life than to know God. There is nothing more important in this life than to know God. 
If that is not our pursuit, then us gathering on Sundays and throughout the week is a facade. It's, it's phony. It's fake. It's nothing. If it's not to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ, then it's for nothing. There's no greater thing than to know Him. And the only way to know God is to know His Son, Jesus. We must know Jesus. And the only way to know Jesus is to repent, turn from sin, and turn to Him and place your entire trust in Him alone. Not like these who are following John the Baptist about being religious. And let me add one more thing to my life and just show some outward form of religiosity. It is to die to myself and completely trust in Christ. That He has died in my place. That He rose from the grave in my place. That not only am I forgiven of my sin, but I also can live in complete righteousness before God because of Christ. That Christ fulfilled the law. So I can be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect because of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist ties that invitation with a warning. But in that warning, he defines what saving faith is. He, he defines what believe means. And for some of you on your lap, if you have a Bible in the translation, like a New King James Version, it uses the word believe twice. That if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. But if you do not believe in the Son, then you have that? But the wrath of God abides in you? Well, that doesn't make sense, really. Those two words, believe, are different words in the Greek. The first one means to place your trust in. Those who believe, place their trust in Christ, have eternal life. That second word, believe, that some of you have, it means to obey. That's why the ESV translates it to obey. So the one that we have up on the screen in verse 36, you'll read, whoever does not obey. That's what that second word in the Greek means in your Bibles that have the word believe. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I want to ask you real quick, church. When I read something like that, does that mean I have to work my way into heaven? Does that mean I have to do certain things to please God before I get into heaven? Because then it's not by grace. Then it's not based on what Christ did. It's based on what I did. So what does this mean? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Well, the scriptures are clear that genuine faith, when we have genuine faith in Jesus, it produces genuine obedience to Christ. That there is a change that happens inside of us. It's not something we add to the outside and add more religious duty. But when we are born again, the scriptures would say we are given a new heart with new desires. And now for the first time, we actually desire to please God. We desire to chase after God. We desire to bring Him glory, whereas before we only cared about me, myself, and I. But because God has worked and done a miracle within us by giving us a new heart, we've been given new desires to please Him. So here it is. If someone professes to know Christ, but obedience to Christ has never been evidenced, the reality is they're most likely not a genuine follower of Christ. And what John here says, the wrath of God remains on them. Which means on that day of judgment, when they stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, did I not repeat a prayer? Did I not stand up in church and raise my hand? Did I not do these things? Did I not respond to the televangelist on TV and repeat what he said? And Jesus would say, depart from me, I never knew you. You worker of lawlessness. That's Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. But all the things that they'll justify before him, he'll say, I never knew you. You were not born again. There is no new heart. There is no regeneration. You never sought after me to, to come and bring me glory with your life. You know, the old saying stands true, and I've said it before, that if the gospel hasn't changed you, the gospel hasn't saved you. The gospel hasn't changed you. The gospel hasn't saved you. John the Baptist, without concern, throws it out there and says, look, if there's not obedience to Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. What does that look like? Some of you I know are well-versed in the second coming of Christ and what will take place. In the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it speaks of him coming back and taking vengeance on those 
who are opposed to him. But read with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. He comes, Jesus does, in flaming fire, and he inflicts vengeance on those who do not know God. Stop there. That would all make sense. Those who do not know God, but continue reading. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. Now, don't shout out any names or don't shout out any, anything, but do you know somebody who professes to be a Christian? And yet there's no evidence in their life that they're a Christian. This is what he's speaking. And we as Christians can become so critical of them and say, oh, I don't want nothing to do with them. Look at them. They're, they're a hypocrite. When our hearts should break for them, that they're completely deceived. That Jesus is coming back. And when he comes a second time, it's with judgment. And when he comes, he is going to judge those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. And what that means, church, is there's going to be those who profess with their mouth that they know, but their lives never show them anything. And they get the same judgment. The same judgment. So what does it mean to obey Christ? Or what does it mean to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? A great chapter, and Lord willing, we'll get there one day. But John chapter 15, Jesus talks about him being the vine, us being the branches. He gets into it, verse 9, and he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I want you to read that again, because when we hear of judgment and coming in flaming fire, we think, freak out and go, oh my goodness. Realize this, as the Father has loved me, so I loved you. And he says this, abide Continue on in my love. Stop there. That's a commandment of Christ. To abide, to continue in his love. What kind of love did Christ demonstrate? Sacrificial. You guys, great imagery is, is he's there and he's washing the disciples' feet. Okay, taking on the lowliest form of a servant, washing their feet. But do you know who's one of the disciples that he's washing their feet? Judas, who he knows will betray him. He doesn't say, well, not you, Judas. I'm going to keep going over here. But he serves him. And he submits to him. A selfless, sacrificial love. Jesus says the only way for us to have that is to abide in his love. That ain't the kind of love we got on our own. That's his love. And he goes on and says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Stop, church. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. The life is now and it's forevermore. And believe it or not, when we begin to do what Christ has commanded us to do, that's when we experience joy. He said, when you go against your own will and your own way and you submit to me and you love like I love, your joy will be You'll live life and experience life like you've never experienced before. Think about how many times we get frustrated and angry at people. And why? Because we exalt ourselves higher than them. Why would you be mad when someone cuts you off? You didn't purchase that lane. It didn't have your name on it. But it's because you exalted yourself higher than them. And how many times have you gotten in lane and go, oops, sorry. Are they supposed to get mad at you and, and scream at you? You want grace, right? You're like, I'm sorry I didn't see you or... Or whatever it is. But the point here is we exalt ourselves. Christ was an example of humbling ourselves. He says, humble yourself in my love. Continue in my love. I love that commandment. To love like Christ. Think about what the Jews were doing. They had hundreds of different types of ritualistic things they had to go through. And Christ says, love. But don't just love. Love like me. Jesus who said, I have come in John 10, 10. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Church, are you lacking joy? Love like Jesus. Submit to him. He has come to give you both life now and forevermore. It is his way to abide in him. If you are a Christian this morning and you know that God has radically done a miracle in you, that he's given you life in Christ, that he's changed your heart and given you a different pursuit in life, then you're to walk in his love. You're to abide in him, continue on, stay steadfast in him. But if this morning 
you don't know him. If this morning you'd look back to John 3.36 and go, well, I would say that I know him, but my life is not evidence that I obey him. This morning would be the day of repentance. This morning would be a time that you turn to him and say, God, God, I turn to you in repentance. It's a moment you would have with God in saying, I have erred. I have missed the mark. I've tried to do it on my own. I thought maybe I could be good enough or get there. But God, I need you. A turn of repentance means that you are fully and wholeheartedly trusting in him. Not chasing after your ways anymore, but chasing after his. Think about it. Jesus came as the way, the truth, and the life. He gave a testimony that was straight out of heaven itself, and people rejected it. And 2,000 years later, we have people on both sides of the fence. Those of us who would rejoice because God has radically changed us from the inside out. He has done a work in us through his grace that we rejoice in him, that we serve him and glorify him. And there are others that probably even in this room who profess, but there's no evidence. I urge you, I plead with you, come to Christ. Turn to him alone. He is Savior. He is the way. He said himself, as we started this sermon this morning, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's only Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there was a whole lot of heavy material here this morning. Father, to slow down and to, to, to culminate everything this morning in verse 36, that we live in a culture in a day where Jesus is a common name, that people aren't foreign to who Jesus is. Many will profess the name of Christ and yet not know him. Many will claim to be a believer in Jesus, and yet their heart is far from him. Father, I pray in this place this morning, if your spirit has revealed to anybody in this place this morning that they don't have a life that would be evident that they are a child of yours, that this morning you would draw them to repentance and faith, that there would be no longer any question or doubt in their mind that they are a child of yours because of a radical change within them, that you would give them a new heart and new desires, and that they would walk and abide in your life. Father, for all those in here that you have done that amazing work in our lives, God, may we be encouraged this morning in the supremacy of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he is far greater than all others, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to you except through him. Father, thank you for accepting us. Thank you for revealing us, our, yourself to us. Thank you for giving us your Son. To you be the glory now and forever. In Jesus' name.